This is exactly right. Forgive me for interrupting. I'm Bridger Weiniger, host of I Said No Gifts on Exactly Right. Each week, I invite my favorite people in comedy over to chat, and they always bring a gift. We're coming up on our 200th episode, and every episode is a gem. I have welcomed all kinds of great guests, including Cola Scola, Bowen Yang, Robbie Hoffman. It goes on and on and on. And you don't want to miss the 200th episode with the great Maria Bamford. What does she bring me? Find out April 25th. New episodes every Thursday. Follow I Said No Gifts wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. It's Dr. Dan, and this is a first. It is a first introduction to a show. And the reason we are doing this first is because after four years, you are going to be listening to our 100th episode, a wonderful milestone for us at Parent Footprint and the Parent Footprint podcast with Dr. Dan. I am excited to say that our 100th episode is with my esteemed and trusted colleague, Dr. Tina Payne Bryson, who many of you know her amazing work and her books with Dr. Dan Siegel. On previous shows, we've talked about the whole brain child, no drama discipline. And on this show, we get to talk about her latest book, her latest solo book, The Bottom Line for Baby, and also a book that we wanted to talk about in the past but couldn't get our schedules together, an amazing book called The Power of Showing Up. This is also monumental because Tina is our only three-peat, the only person who's been on the show three times, which you will hear that she likes that distinction, being the competitive person that she is. So before going on to the show, I want to give heartfelt thanks to our producer, Laura Rossi, who has been with the show and before the show, been with me working together for years and every step of the way. Also want to thank our amazing podcast engineer, Phil Rossi. Special thanks to Elizabeth Shook for all of the marketing over the years, spreading the word about this podcast. Also want to acknowledge and thank my Parent Footprint co-founder, Paymon Fosley. And last and certainly not least, thank all of our listeners for showing up, for joining us on this journey, for their commitment and courage to being the best parents and people they can be for their kids and joining us in our mission to make the world a more loving and compassionate place, one parent and one child at a time. Let's do another 100. Welcome to the Parent Footprint Podcast with Dr. Dan, and I'm your host, Dr. Dan, and let me tell you about our mission. That mission is to make the world a more loving and compassionate place, one parent and one child at a time. We believe the key to raising happy, healthy, and engaged kids is for us parents to do the same in our own lives, to seek happiness, to seek health and engagement. At Parent Footprint, we believe that awareness is the foundation for your vision of successful parenting. And with increased awareness and intention, we can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint on our children. Today's show is called The Bottom Line for Baby. And I am so excited to reintroduce you to my trusted colleague, Dr. Tina Payne Bryson. And many of you know her work well, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about her work, and then we're going to talk about it. She is the co-author with Dr. Dan Siegel of two times New York bestsellers, The Whole Brain Child and No Drama Discipline, each which has been translated into dozens of languages. She's also co-author of The Yes Brain and The Power of Showing Up, which is an awesome, awesome book. She is the founder and executive director of the Center for Connection, which is a multidisciplinary clinical practice in Southern California. Dr. Tina keynotes conferences everywhere, now a little more virtually than in the past, uh, and conducts workshops for parents, educators, and clinicians literally all over the world. She is a licensed clinical social worker, a graduate of Baylor University, and has a PhD from USC. But of course, the most important part of her bio is that she is a mom to her three boys. Tina, welcome back to the show. 
Thank you so much, Dan. It's always a pleasure to get to visit with you. We could just talk for hours and hours and there's so many things we could talk about. And so I can't wait to just dig into this idea with you. And we can talk about the power of showing up too, because we haven't talked about that on a podcast yet. We, we, we kept, we had trouble scheduling that one, right? You, you, you were very busy with that one. So I think we, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing there's going to be a concepts that we talk about where those are going to weave in. Absolutely. Um, I do have, we just have to, I have to say one thing up front here. You have set a first, uh, parent footprint podcast record. You are the first guest to be a three Pete. Congratulations. Oh, wow. So <laughs> I think I'm honored. And um, I know our audience just loves um, listening to you and loves your book. So first time. Okay, so here well, we go. Yeah, just something really like just about me is I, I kind of am a competitive person. So I really like that. And if someone comes on three times, I want you to call me so I can come on four times. Like maybe Deal. we should pre preload to keep Deal. the record high enough. Yeah. I'm Deal. a competitive, I'm, I, I'm a good loser too, but, um, but I do, I am kind of competitive. <laughs> okay. So we have this deal that you're always going to be able to one up the exactly. next, the next exactly. competitive guest. Awesome. Which sounds terrible given all the subjects I write about, you know, that I want to one up somebody, but, um, it's just a part of my part of who I am. <laughs> Competition. Well, I was looking at, you know, in this book, um, we had talked, I don't know how long ago, and you told me that, I mean, it seems like not that long ago, but you told me this book was in the works. And then when I got the email that it was out, and then under it, I love the image of all of your books. And I, I turned to my wife and I turned the computer towards her. I'm like, look at at Tina's books over the last few years, she is on fire. Like that is a quote. <laughs> that, that was an actual quote. I said, she's on fire. So I have a feeling that competitive edge has something to do with your productivity as well. It does. I'm, I'm definitely, you know, my mom is um, a wonderful therapist and she has this really calm energy about her. Like everyone wants her to be their mom. And I kind of think of her as a dove. She's like a dove, but I am a hummingbird. I am a busy bee. I like to be really productive. Um, I have, I have to like really work hard at saying, okay, I'm going to stop and just relax. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm really good at being present relationally, but that feels to me also like I'm doing something important. You know what I mean? It's not just like, I'm just chilling, but yeah, I'm, I feel really passionate like you, um, about ideas that matter. And I feel, I knew by the time I was 19, um, and on a mission trip with the church I was um, a part of growing up, that I knew that I wanted to invest my life in people. And if I didn't do that, my life wouldn't have the kind of meaning I wanted it to have. And so at that point, I decided I was going to be a, t- a high school English teacher, and I did that for a period of time. But really, the more I learned about the brain and the more I learned about the incredible power of relationships to influence how the brain gets developed and including how impact happens over generations. I just, I feel this like burning in my soul to share what I know in ways that are accessible and and helpful. So yeah, I don't think I'll be done writing books anytime soon because I feel like there's more important things to, to help get out there. So Mm -hmm. yeah. So that's, first of all, that's a calling, right? At 19, like you just knew that. Um, and you, you, you didn't know which way, which way it was going to take you. But right. that guide of relationships and people obviously has stuck with you. And you know what? I didn't call out. And I, I mean, congratulations. I mean, you've written, co-written these books with Dr. Dan. Um, amazing books. And as far as I know, this is your first solo um, solo drive here. That's right. That's, That's really right. cool. Really cool. And it's a really different book from my other books. I mean, really different. You know, um, this book has controversial topics in it, so I'm getting prepared for that. Um, mm-hmm. And because you know, if you know, there are 30 reviews on Amazon, and they're all five stars, and then the one person leaves a one star. That's the one I think about. You know, um, right, right. and uh, and so yeah, the book is full of controversial issues, but it's also you know, all my other books are so much about relationship. And what's really neat about this book is it's it's really for new parents um, or parents of kids in their first two years or so. And it's organized alphabetically. And it's really 60 plus topics that parents get the most controversial, the most competing information about. And they can quickly turn to that topic. Like for instance, I just flipped to germs. And the way each 
um, topic is laid out is really showing first the competing opinions. So the competing opinions on that is like um, infants have vulnerable immune systems. We should really try to keep their environment sanitary. The other opinion is no, actually exposure to a lot of dirt and grime and stuff like that actually helps build the immune system. So that's like the first part of every entry is what are the competing perspectives? The second part of each entry is what does the science say? So here I basically lay out, you know, what is the latest science in quality science, peer-reviewed um, meta-analyses when they're available. And then I give a bottom line that really is, in this case, saying actually when kids are exposed to pets or parents lick the pacifiers clean and stick them back in their mouths and they, they're in dirt and all of that, they actually have lower rates of eczema and allergies. So you don't have to over sanitize. And then in about a third of the entries, I give a personal note where I tell a personal story or I worked really hard, Dan, to be super objective in reporting the science. And I didn't actually always follow and, and may not agree with every scientific bottom line mm -hmm. um, or research-driven bottom line. And so that's where I would put it in a personal note, say, actually, I didn't do it that way because I think the research is missing this important question or um, I tried that and it didn't work for me and that kind of thing. But it's similar to my other books in that there is a bottom line of the bottom line which right, is really right. totally the message in The Power of Showing Up um, as well. And the other books that it's really about your relationship with your baby or your child that matters more than anything. And really all the decisions that feel like the most important decision ever, they matter and we want to be intentional about them, but it's not really going to have the huge impact on who your kid becomes that your relationship will have. Mm -hmm. And I... I'm looking forward to diving into the controversial topics. Um, you can, you're going to practice here, right? Okay. We're going to talk about them. <laughs> I um, feel but, safe with yes. you. Yes. <laughs> but before, before that, I'm glad you just let us into the power of showing up. Because that title and that concept, which I've used at my talks um, ever since that book came out, is, it, it, to use the word again, it's so powerful if you can give these parents who are feeling guilty, these parents who are feeling bad, these parents who are feeling all the pressure of this world that we live in before even pandemic, um, that, hey, what really matters is that you show up for your child. Yeah. And, and the look on their faces, you know, when you're, when you're giving this information is like one of awe and many times like relief. Like, okay, I can do that. Yeah. I can show up. So tell us, tell, tell the audience just a little bit more about that concept and, and the impact that has been having with the book. You know, um, The Power of Showing Up came out January of 2020 before we knew this pandemic was happening. Um, and it was actually kind of ideal timing because Dan and I got to do all the fun things out in the world to kind of share the book with people and have some events and all of that. Um, and then you know, this, this huge thing that turned our lives upside down. And it's not just the pandemic. I think, um, I'm so glad this book is here because the message in that book is even more important now. And the message in the book is that based on 50 years of cross-cultural research, there is something we know that is one of the best predictors for how well kids turn out on pretty much everything we measure them on, all the social, emotional stuff, even academic health, uh, or, you know, um, uh, achievement, um, relational stuff, all the social and emotional stuff, like I said, but also just even mental health, leadership qualities, having, um, you know, in the research, they call it um, non-aggressive romantic relationships. Um, there's all of these things that are, are outcomes of this one thing. And that one thing is secure attachment with at least one person. And I want to be really clear that what I mean when I say that is not the same thing as attachment parenting, which is a parenting approach um, that Dr. Sears has written about. And there's some lovely things in that approach, but it's not the same. If, if you do everything in that attachment parenting kind of manual, you might not have a child who's securely attached to you. And if you do none of the things in that book, you could have a child who's securely attached to you. So it's really important mm -hmm. we differentiate that. It's not really about like whether or not you, you know, co-sleep with your child or whether or not you, you know, wore them in a, in a Bjorn when they were babies. Those things don't, they can promote a relationship and bonding, but that does not, you know, lead to necessarily secure attachment. Secure attachment comes um, because of a biological instinct and drive we have as mammals. So if you're a little bear cub and you see a predator or you get hurt or you hear something scary, without even thinking about it, um, 
the biological drive is to run to a parent um, bear who will help you stay alive. That's kind of the absolute fundamental purpose of attachment is that we have tremendous need for our caregivers to help us survive in our early years because we can't do it on our own. We need to be connected and protected in order to survive. And so what this attachment system um, is really all about is particularly when we are in distress, particularly when we are at our worst, when we're having the hardest time, when we're afraid, when we're sad, you know, whatever our distress is about, that is when we most need people to show up for us. That's when we most need connection. So that's why I'm saying the timing of this pandemic is, is that this message is out is really important. So, you know, really Dan and I um, then kind of dig into um, two things or two kind of umbrellas to explore when it comes to how do we, if, if secure attachment is really what sets our kids up for having all the best outcomes, first of all, know that that is not just because they've had lovely experiences, but because those experiences actually change how the brain gets wired, and particularly the prefrontal cortex, which we know is the foundation for all the important things related to social and emotional intelligence, mental health, executive function, um, sound decision-making, regulating our emotions. I mean, just really all the stuff that makes life work well. Um, but there's two ways that we really, if, so if that's the big thing we want for our kids, knowing it's the best thing we can do for them in terms of who they turn out to be, um, there are really two umbrellas of ways we can cultivate that secure attachment. And the first one is so in line with Parent Footprint is about, and it's a whole other episode, so maybe we'll do a whole other one just on this, but is that the number one predictor for whether or not parents are able to provide secure attachment for their kids is not whether or not they had secure attachment with their own parents. And thank God, because about 40% of us did not have secure attachment with our primary caregivers. Um, maybe you grew up in a family where your emotions and needs were kind of ignored. You were left alone emotionally and you were, you, you kind of grew up in an emotional desert, or maybe you had a parent who was really bad at soothing you and making you feel safe and taken care of because they were so chaotic and unpredictable or worse. Maybe you had a parent who, instead of being the one you run to when you are in distress or when you're terrified or in pain, your parent was the source of your terror or your pain. Um, those are all three examples of different patterns of insecure attachment. And so if we grew up with those, the great news from the research is that history is not destiny and that it's not whether or not it's not whether or not we had secure attachment with our own parents. What predicts us being able to provide it to our kids is that we have reflected on it, that awareness piece that you talked about. Um, we, we become aware of and reflect on how those experiences growing up impacted who we are as parents and who we are as humans. Um, and then once we start looking at those things and are able to create what the research calls a coherent narrative, where we're really not running from our past, but we're also not flooded with it and tangled up, we've made sense of it. We've looked at it and go, gosh, my parents weren't there for me. Or, my, you know, I was always having to comfort my mom because she, she didn't do a good job of taking care of herself and she sure didn't show up for me. So I had to show up for her all the time. That was really hard on me, you know, or whatever the story is. But you go back and you make sense of it and how it's impacted you. And the research shows that that's what's called earned secure attachment. You do it through that reflection process. And those parents are able to provide secure attachment for their kids just as much as parents who grew up with that, you know, continuous um, earned, uh, continuous secure attachment. So that's one umbrella. Nice. Um, and nice. that's an ongoing journey. I mean, that is like yeah. a constant. That's not like one and done. You don't go to therapy for four sessions, cross off, I have a coherent narrative. Because as <laughs> right, our, right. unfortunately, right, it's an yeah. ongoing process. And as, you know, the longer we are in our own romantic relationships, the longer we are parenting and our kids hit new developmental stages, new stuff comes up that we, we might triggered. not have made sense of. Totally. Yeah, exactly. So I think just those moments as parents, we act in ways that we're like, where did that come from? Who is that? You know, that's an invitation for us to say, okay, let me be curious about that. What was that about? And sometimes it's like, I'm exhausted. I'm stressed out. I haven't slept. No one's let me go potty by myself for four years, you know, and I just need some alone time. Yeah. But other times it's like, oh yeah, you know, when I turned, in, when I was a teenager, you know, my parents really checked out and, or whatever it is. So it's, there's an ongoing, that's an ongoing journey. But what about in the everyday? And so this is the second umbrella. 
the everyday moments with our kids. How do we foster and cultivate secure attachment? And Dan and I came up with, you know, we like things that help people remember them. Um, the four S's. And you the guys four... have great letters, <laughs> great acronyms, the four S's. And you, you're all going to remember this. You're all going to yes. remember this. Yes. Well, and it's important to remember because there are so many moments as a mom, as a wife, as a clinician, um, where I'm not exactly sure what to do in that moment. Um, but the four S's are a North star for me. They are always the right answer for what to do in a moment, because not only do they really help, um, it's effective in the moment in terms of getting everybody connected and it's good for the relationship, but it also is building the brain. So the four S's are helping kids feel safe, seen, soothed, and secure. So let me just hit those quickly. Safe is of course, protecting them from harm, right? Making sure that, um, we're, you know, taking them to the doctor and they're wearing their seatbelts and all those kinds of things. But the other part of it is making sure we are not the source of fear for our children. And we, you know, of course, abuse and those kinds of things would fit into that category. But in terms of more, you know, typical patterning in families, ways we violate um, this and, and where our children don't feel safe are um, when parents, whether they're married or not, are having aggressive conflict in front of kids. Um, that can really undermine a child's sense of feeling safe. Um, another one is when we as parents um, lose our minds, flip our lids, um, and act crazy. And we become really unpredictable in those moments. We yell, we're really overreactive. Um, and the good news is, is that when those things happen, either of those things, um, if we repair with our children after those ruptures um, and we make things right with them, we actually wire in their brains that they know that relationships can be messy sometimes and hard, but that, that people show up and make things right, right? So we, we actually kind of build some resilience around um, relationships so that if we were perfect all the time, their first time they had a romantic relationship, they would think there was something really wrong, you know, totally. the first time there was conflict. So I think that's a, a big piece of it. Um, and, and then just a couple other things really quickly on safety before we move on is that right now, you know, we have to remember that the brain um, hates when things are not predictable and our lives are less predictable than they've ever been. Yeah. And so one, some of the things we can be thinking about this when we're thinking about our kids going back to school or, or maybe meeting up with a friend um, at a, you know, for the first time or going places, a lot of kids are having a pretty significant increase in anxiety. Although some kids are actually doing better right now. Um, there is definitely a surge in this and we can be thinking about safety should really be the first thing we think about. And that's what I'm talking to schools about as well is that, you know, if you, if kids don't feel safe, and when I say that, I don't mean just a feeling. I mean, there's a neuroception in their nervous system where their, their fight, flight, freeze mechanism is not activated. They are in a receptive state. You know, there's, there's an actual physiological component to safety as well. They really can't learn very well. So we, as parents, we can, um, make sure that the messaging we're giving our kids is more safety-based instead of threat-based. Like we're taking a break on seeing friends right now so that we can be safe instead of we can't see friends right now because it's dangerous. Right. I think having that safety-based messaging, then kids get repeated experiences of my parents keep me safe as opposed to repeated messages of the world is a dangerous place. So we just really want to always kind of be, you know, that Mindful. idea of a safe. Yes. Yeah. And, yeah. and that we are, we are going to, we, that we're on it. Like, you know, I will keep you safe. I've got this, you know, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, scene, I think, is the hardest one to do. Scene is really about trying our best to really understand the mind of our child. And particularly that often means looking at the mind behind the behavior. So as parents, we get so focused on the behavior and is it inappropriate behavior and what dis then what consequence do I give? And we, we are not paying attention to what's happening underneath all of that. Um, we talk about that a lot, no drama discipline, but um, you know, this, the ex example of this, like um, is a st story. My son, um, I was like, Hey, we're going to get to go to the movies. I'm going to take you to the movies. It'd be so just such a fun surprise. Let's go after school today. And he was like, okay, but that sounds so fun. Like I'm so excited, but can I get popcorn? And I was like, nah, we're not going to get popcorn today. You have a party at school and it's just enough junk food. We're not getting popcorn. And he kind of pouted a little bit. Mm -hmm. 
So in that moment, my immediate reaction is to be like, if you're going to be spoiled and pout about not getting popcorn, <laughs> we're not going to even go to the movies. And right. then to go on a whole lecture about how spoiled he is and how the whole world like has never even seen a movie in other country, you know, like yeah. to do that whole thing. And if I'm, if I'm really being mindful where that comes from in me is an underlying fear that my child is spoiled or an underlying fear that my child is not grateful or they don't have a perspective of the need in the world. Right. So then I respond um, from that fear without even being aware of it. If I'm working on scene, first I have to make sure safe. So I have to make sure I'm not screaming and yelling and reactive. So first I calm myself, I take a deep breath and then I'm going to tune into what my child is experiencing. And I say, you know what? I'm just remembering last time we went to the movies, you got popcorn and you love popcorn. So when I said, we're not getting popcorn, you felt really disappointed. Is that right? And he nods and I say, yeah, it's disappointing sometimes when we get our expectations up and something doesn't happen. I know that can be tough sometimes. Um, now that does not mean I still buy the popcorn, right? I can say no to the behavior still, but yeah, I'm really yeah. saying yes to his internal experience. And when I say that, then he goes, oh, she gets me. And right, I right. have a feeling now it's been named. I can move past it. If we don't do that and we just immediately launch into you're so spoiled and if you're going to pout, you're not going to get anything. You know, if we go into that kind of thing, then our kid has not only the feelings that have not been named, there can be some shaming around what he feels, but also he's like, gosh, I'm in this feeling alone. She doesn't get me. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot that happens yeah. that without us being aware if we don't do that. Well, and I, let me interject one uh, memory that you just gave me um, in that uh, that example. I always think back, gosh, I was in my young 20s, didn't even think about having kids. And I was reading Scott Peck's The Road Less Traveled. Love an that book. An amazing book. And on the chapter about parenting or the part on parenting, I'll never forget. And I use this all the time that with my family and with uh, clients. I remember Scott Peck saying, it's not whether you say yes or no to your kids about what they want. It's that they know that you care enough to even think about the decision. Wow. I love and that's that. exactly what you just, you know, that's a paraphrase right there, but yeah. that, that's exactly what you just uh, shared with related yeah. to the podcast, you know, that just knowing that you're thinking about it before giving a response. Yeah. That intentionality. And it's really, it's, it's about, it's, it's back to kind of really one of the big messages of showing up too, which is about presence, really being present and tuned in to what's happening instead of distracted and checked out. And, and also in that moment, my kid might need some skill building around gratitude and perspective and those kinds of things. But in my mind and from the no drama discipline lens, I'm going, okay, his behavior is communicating the areas he needs skill building. So at dinner tonight and for the next couple of weeks, we're going to do some gratitude practice during dinner time, right? So it's not that you just ignore the behavior, you're still addressing the behavior, but it's really about your child growing up and saying, my parent got who I was. They loved me for who I was and not who they wanted me to be. And whatever was happening inside of me, they, they understood me. So that's really, it's, it's something that's hard to do, but the more we practice, the easier and easier it gets. And by the way, these four S's are exactly what we need in our adult relationships as well. Um, these attachment exactly. needs are throughout the lifespan. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm actually pretty good at seeing with my kids. I'm often not good at it with my husband. Um, and he learned the hard way that telling me that I should connect and redirect from whole brain or from saying, you know, can we go back to the second S for a minute? Like bringing my own work to me in the moment doesn't work very well. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> um, but honestly, it's, it's really helped. Um, and then the third S is soothed. And soothed is really about remembering that at our worst, that is when we most need connection and help. Mm -hmm. um, so this is where we nurture, we comfort, we support, we show up in that moment with our presence. Um, again, it's not a permissive kind of thing, but we're there to help. And, you know, the biggest pushback I get on that is parents will say, yeah, but you're just, you're just letting them, you're just reinforcing bad behavior if you're comforting them. But really, if you look at the science, again, the whole point of discipline and addressing kids' behaviors is to build skills so that they have those skills to do better the next time. And they're building that, that ability themselves. And when people are in reactive states, they really can't learn. So the reason we provide safe, seen, and soothed 
And one of the reasons is it gets them back into a receptive state where we really can effectively address the behavior. So this can be as simple as, you know, one time my kid was freaking out about not having to get out of the bathtub um, and I set the boundary, which also helps kids be safe. It's time to get out. He wouldn't get out. So I said, you can get out yourself or I will lift you out. And as I lifted him out, he was screaming and crying and I do seen and I say, I can see you're really mad about having to get out of the bathtub. So I just, simple as that, I just name what I think he's feeling. I wrap the towel around him and I say, um, you're having such a hard time and it's okay if you need to cry for a little while, I'm right here with you while you cry. So sometimes it's not even about like, let me go get you a, you know, sometimes it's like, let me go get you a glass of water, especially with older kids or, um, or something like that. But it's not about distracting them from their feelings or, or about, making them not be upset. It's really about being present. And when as parents, when I, as a parent came to realize that in the moment when my child was falling apart and having a really hard time, no matter what it was, it could be a dumb tantrum about something that I thought was stupid, Mm -hmm. but it was important to my kid at that moment um, that I didn't really have to do anything. I didn't have to fix anything. I didn't have to change a boundary. I didn't have to do a song and dance to distract them. All I had to do in that moment was be present and show up and say, I'm right here with you. And when we get that, it's incredibly liberating because that's your only job in the moment. You don't even have to think about what should I say? What should I do? Or how can I get them to calm down? You don't even have to think. All you have to do is really just say, this is hard. I'm here with you. I would have loved to have that information when our intense, sensitive, uh, kids who were highly emotional. Um, I would have loved to have that information back then that we just got to sit there and breathe through it with them instead of fix it or correct it or discipline it or all the things that we're often told by people that we believe know stuff. Yeah. And I I wish I had learned it earlier than I learned it too. I think it just, you know, it's so mentally demanding and emotionally demanding those moments. And so to just relax into the moment and go, this moment's going to come and go. And I want my kid to have an experience like I can handle their big feelings and I trust that they can handle their big feelings. I mean, that's where resilience comes in is, is that you go through something hard with enough support and then your brain learns, I can handle that and people show up for me. So I always have that kind of support. Um, so that leads us to the fourth S of secure, which is really that when kids have not perfect parents, um, but parents who are predictable most of the time in helping them feel safe, seen, and soothed, they develop that secure attachment, which is really not just, I feel secure about myself. That's a sure, for sure an outcome, but rather that their brain has wired to know that if they have a need, someone will see it and show up for them. And more importantly, they learn that they learn how to show up for themselves. So they learn how to keep themselves safe and see and understand themselves and soothe themselves and then provide that secure attachment and the four S's for their partners and eventually their kids. And that's what's so powerful about this. Awesome. So here I was so bummed that we couldn't get our schedules together to talk, to have a podcast about the power showing up and we just did it. So everyone, this is like, this is a twofer. You know what? We I was going to say, can, you I, like, can you count me as a twofer on this one? You know what? This is like maybe three and a half to four. This is awesome. Um, so everyone, you just to reiterate, you just heard what is so key, these four S's, how we need to focus on safety seen, helping our kids be seen, help them soothe, and then they will feel secure. And this does go for all ages. And we can keep talking about this, but I want to get to your new book, Bottom Line for Baby. And you know, yeah. I do want to have you a controversy, you know, something about controversy. But as we've already gotten into this, I want to actually switch gears and go to what big takeaway, I know there's so much information there, but if you could distill, what are your big takeaways that you want people to know is the bottom line for baby? The bottom line for baby is the four S's. <laughs> really, my favorite parts of this book, and like I said, it's alphabetical over 60 topics. And what's great is parents within just a couple of minutes can get empowered with the latest knowledge and use it to ward off um, in-laws or other people who are giving them advice that's outdated or whatever. Um, but my favorite part of the book is actually the introduction and the conclusion, which in the conclusion, the, the thing that I think is so important here is to say, and I, okay, let me, let me back up for a second. I wrote this book. I mean, I'm past the baby ages. My youngest is 14. This is the first book I longed for as a parent. 
I remember with my firstborn, you know, just I had so many decisions I had to make. And when I would get advice or I would read, everything contradicted each other and they were all compelling arguments. So then I felt with a lot, I felt kind of um, analysis paralysis, right? Um, like I didn't know what to do. And so I love the, the, this, one of the main ideas from this book is empower yourself with the knowledge, get informed on what the science says, and then trust your baby trust yourself and do what works for your family. And you are going to have people who, and especially around the big topics, the big topics are breastfeeding. You know, there's like what they call the mommy wars. I wish they called yep. them the parent wars, but, right, right. Um, but like breastfeeding people are so, um, can be so unkind and critical of people who make a different decision from what they make, not just in breastfeeding, but in any of these. And a lot of that has to do with um, if someone's doing it differently than the way we've done it, and then we we have to defend our decision because otherwise we feel like it makes us a bad parent. So that's where yeah. I think a lot of that kind of dogmatic um, rigidity comes from around some of these topics. Like sleep. Like sleep, yeah. So the controversial topics in this book, I mean, there's a lot in here that's not, like germs, that's not that, you know. Um, and like, there's an entry in here, the shortest entry in the book is on reading. And it basically says there's no controversy. Just read to your baby. Um, uh, (laughs) Music, you know, like music, the science says that music is incredibly powerful for not just um, emotional health, but also physical health. You know, it helps babies, premature babies um, put on weight faster. Like, so there's some stuff in here that's, that's not controversial, but that's super important, including one surprise for me was about noise machines. You know, we keep those little oh, yeah. white noise machines yeah. in our baby's rooms. Um, a lot of them, the decibels are way too high and can cause um, hearing damage. Wow. So um, there's that's just really helpful to know. I think um, the big topics in the book, though, that are controversy are breastfeeding, co-sleeping, yeah. um, sleep training, vaccinations. And I think there's one more, but I can't think of what it is. Um, and I, you know, I think what's, So the bottom line of the book is those decisions when you're making them feel like really important decisions. And a lot of them are, Um, you know, making sure your child is buckled in their car seat safely. That's a super important thing to do. But a lot of the things that we feel like are going to be life and death or that are like the most important thing in terms of how our kids turn out. When, after you've had more than one kid, after you've had a few kids and you realize that every kid is super different and your family's needs change over time and your needs change over time, a lot of that gets sort of sorted into perspective and you realize that a lot of the things that seem like they mattered so much don't matter as much as other things. And so the bottom line of the book is really what your kid needs most from you is for you to show up and to be present. All those things we just talked about. and. I think we've got to stop being so judgmental too about how other people do it. And, and I guess, let me say it this way. I think one of the other huge messages in the book is that there are many, many ways to be a really great parent. There's not yes. one way. Yes. And that a lot of the scientific recommendations are actually mutually exclusive. You can't even follow what all the science says. So this is this, there's no way you can do it. So that takes a lot of the pressure off where we can say, look, I'm going to get informed and then I'm going to really do what works for my family. And, you know, a good example is, you know, my, I had a, I'm a big breastfeeding advocate. I think it's wonderful if it works for you and your baby. I nursed for years and years and years um, across my three kids. And so I say that as a, um, because I've already gotten some, we think you're anti-breastfeeding um, messages. Um, I'm absolutely not, but mm-hmm. I have, Many people who I've known who really wanted to breastfeed, but maybe, for example, a friend of mine who had such low milk production that she was spending hours a day pumping to try to increase her milk production. And what that meant was that she was not spending as much. She was super stressed. She felt like a bad mom and she was not spending the time with her baby that she needed to spend with her baby and wanted to spend with her baby. So, you know, what made her a better mom was to not breastfeed. Right. What made right. her a better mom was to to do what worked for what her baby needed, which was her. Right. Um, and I think that's the message in both the power of showing up and the bottom line for baby is what your child needs most from you is you. Yeah. Flawed you, imperfect you, um, but you, that's what your child needs most from you. And so if some of these decisions we're making as parents lead us to be really unhappy or to be depressed or to be so stressed out that we can't be present, 
then probably a change is called for because that's what kids need most from their parents. Mm-hmm. What I what I love about what you're saying is um, just to summarize is be informed so you know what the research says because you're all about the research and then you know your baby and your family and yourself better than anyone so trust your judgment trust your Absolutely. instincts trust your intuition and do what works for you and as i'm saying this uh, when i'm putting up my hands everyone to all of those people who are judging you it's not their life they don't know what's going on in your home and who even knows how it turned out for them. You have exactly. to trust yourself. Exactly. And, you know, I had a best friend that I grew up with. We even shared a wedding dress. We had, you know, <laughs> we, we went to college together. She and I had babies within a week of each other, our first babies. And she and I did things really differently. Like on half the entries in here, she and I picked opposite sides. And her kid, our kids are 20 now. And her kid is awesome. And my kid mm-hmm. is awesome. Neither one of them are mm-hmm. perfect. But all of those things, you know, I think that's so important. And there's also a lot of misinformation out there. I mean, shocking as it may be, parents are still being told it's a smaller and smaller faction, but it's still out there that they can spoil their baby by picking them up too much. They're told that their baby can manipulate them if they go in and and rush to their baby's needs. That is wrong. The science is really clear that that you cannot do anything bad and it's all good when you quickly and sensitively respond to your baby's needs. And, um, you know, parents are also told that if they don't sleep train their baby, um, I was shocked to hear this. Parents have been telling me, I got a message this morning on Instagram from someone who said, thank you so much for your entry on sleep training. I, w- I had been told that I had to sleep train my baby and she would just cry and cry and cry. And it felt so wrong to me. Um, and I just felt like a failure as a mom. And in the book, I report the science that says 20% of babies, no matter what you do to sleep train them, it won't work. And she's like, my kid was one of the 20% and we went through so much torture. And by the way, there's also um, a lot of research that shows that if you don't do any kind of cry it out sleep training method, it has nothing to do with whether your baby actually learns to sleep. It's more about when, but regardless of whether babies have been sleep trained or not, um, by two, most, most kids are really good sleepers. So, you know, it's really just informing people about things that they've been told or that they've heard that may not be true. Another thing, um, another kind of surprise for me in the literature was, um, uh, yeah, that idea that you can, you know, lick your kid's pacifier clean and pop it in their mouth and that's not going to hurt them. Um, but also, um, that idea of parentese, it used to be called mother ease, but it's where we, um, do that kind of baby talk with our infants, you know, um, Yeah, I do it with my dog even. Um, But uh, the research is super clear over a decade of research that says that um, babies respond better to that and that it's way better for them um, in terms of uh, language development and rhythm and all that than just speaking to them like an adult or like an older child. So, you know, feel free to to do that. That's really good. In fact, someone just sent me, someone read that entry and sent me an article about how bats do that too for their young. Ah. Um, So anyway, yeah, there were just some surprises in there. I think that's what's so fun about it is the research really can guide us um, in the decisions we're making and we should feel free to ignore them too, as long as it's not around basic safety. Yeah, and I think that's that's just such an important message for everyone to hear. It's um, again, just repeat: you have to. This is your family, and you need to trust yourself. And going back to what you've talked about with the cohesive narrative, which is so consistent with parent footprint and becoming aware of where we came from and how that, how where we came from informs our own parenting. There are a lot of triggers. There are a lot of things that come up that we are aware or not aware of yeah. um, as our kids go through every developmental stage. And it's really to try to take this step back and, and be mindful, as you said, and thoughtful about how do, okay, this is how it happened for me. And this is how I want it to go for my kids. And yeah. what, what might be those barriers that are keeping me from doing what I even want to do because I'm getting triggered, for example. Right. Right. It's so important that we have awareness. Mm-hmm. Without awareness, we don't have a choice. Once yes. we have awareness, yes. we begin to be able to have choice. It's, a, it's like it creates this little space mm-hmm. between stimulus and response. Yes. That allows us to have more agency in our lives. And I think particularly now... 
um, where we feel very much at the mercy of what's happening in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That, you know, one of the things we know from trauma research is that when we kind of go into more immobilized states and shut down, we're m- far more likely to have bigger impact from a traumatic experience than if we mobilize and do something. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one of the things, it seems passive, but actually that that act of awareness, that act of pausing and noticing something um, leads us to be able to mobilize. You know, like um, my kid was telling me from his online schooling, he, you know, he was like, mom, my face hurts, my head hurts, my neck hurts. And um, I said, oh my goodness, that's so good that you've noticed that. Because, and I think that's just an important way, like when our kids say things like that, we want to reinforce that idea of noticing. It's so good you notice that because now when you notice that, you can kind of pull your shoulders back and stretch a little bit. You, that's your body telling you, I need you to move and stretch a little bit. I need you to take a break from the screen. Um, so that's so great that you noticed that, you know, just really kind yeah. of trying to instill um, those kinds of things. Or even, you know, we eat dinner outside most nights on our um, in our backyard um, and just little moments like, gosh, the air feels so nice on my skin, Um, or notice how pretty the sky is, you know, just little moments like that to kind of instill that idea of paying attention on purpose, which is really how I I like to define mindfulness. Um, I learned that, I'm sure, from Dan Mm -hmm. um, Siegel, but that idea of paying attention on purpose doesn't, you know, that mindfulness, that doesn't just mean about what we do. It's really even about our internal world, too, is paying attention on purpose. Love it. Pay attention on purpose. And I'm also quoting you, when we are aware, we have choice. And that is a perfect segue to the parent footprint moment question, which of course, you are going to now do for more times than anyone in the history of the podcast. (laughs) Winner! Third time, winner. (laughs) Okay. Are you ready, Tina? I'm ready. Okay. Tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual or as a parent, and that new awareness had a positive impact on your child? So I tend to be very high, highly, I rate highly conscientious. And I um, really have, I have high expectations. And I think there are oftentimes, you know, like there's a better way to put the dishes in the dishwasher than other ways, right? So like I tend to have, you know, standards around things. Um, and I remember... Um, I was working with one of my sons in the kitchen and I was like, no, don't do it that way. You need to do it this way. And he was like, mom, there are lots of ways to do it. And all of a sudden something clicked for me and I was like, he's not having fun. And I'm making this about how to do it as opposed to being with him. And that's the most important thing. Mm. And it created a really big shift in my life, not just around parenting, you know, obviously I got, I was able to, and and it still sneaks up on me, but I've worked really hard at being more focused on slowing things down and having it be about the process, not about the product, which is Mm. so how I'm driven. I'm so driven Mm -hmm. to have the product Um, and to really be like, who cares if the dinner gets made at all? You know, I'm not attached to the outcome. It's really about doing this with my kid. And when I was able to do that um, and make that shift, um, I actually started seeing ways I was being rigid in lots of other ways. You know, like I wanted the towels be, you know, to be folded a certain way and it didn't matter. It was great that my kids were folding towels. So it really helped me let go of a lot of things that I, that I felt like needed to be done a certain way. Mm-hmm. And to, it's, it's that idea of like, there are lots of ways to do things. Um, and so I, I, what I, realized in that moment is I really, I grew up with the, in a family where I, with my dad, I had to walk on eggshells all the time. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think my kids were experiencing that, but I wanted them to feel completely free to nice. just be and do and figure out the way they wanted to fold the towels. Like it didn't matter. And it really truly didn't matter to me either. I just had never thought about it before. Mm-hmm. So that idea awesome. of letting it be free. And I want my home to be a safe haven. I want it to be yeah. when they're home, they can just be themselves and not feel criticized. Of course, there are expectations, of course. But yeah. um, I think just that idea of not being attached to one way to do something. That is a great awareness and as always helped by our children teaching us, right? Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. It's so important. Yeah. And can I say one more thing? Sure. Because it's something I posted on Instagram a couple of weeks ago, and I've had such a huge response, and I think it's such a good way to think about kind of this idea of showing up for our kids too. Um, and it's this idea around this safe haven. If we want our homes to be and our relationships with our kids to be places where they can fully be and fully feel safe, seen and soothed. Um, we have to remember that if we want to be the safe Harbor, we can't be the storm. Mm. And so yeah. what that means is it's really hard to parent more hard than ever right now. Um, the, the, what's demanded of us is so much greater than what our capacity is a lot of the time. And what I think that is so important that we close on is the idea that we have to make sure we're showing up for ourselves as parents. Yeah. And we have to make sure like who's showing up for us. Are there people who help us feel safe, seen, soothed and secure? And are we showing up for ourselves? Because if we're not doing that, we're not going to have anywhere close to the capacity to having the kind of awareness that allows us to create the parent footprint that we want. Oh, that was such a beautiful closing right there. <laughs> I'm just going to leave. That's the drop of my closing. I, so that is awesome. It comes full circle, right? For us to be invested in our own lives so we can show up for our yeah. kids and raise healthy kids. Tina, thanks so much for a, like, this is a double header. We got, we got the power it. of showing up and to hear about your new book, Bottom Line for Baby, your new book written solo. Awesome. <laughs> Tell everyone you, who, where they can find the book and all of your stuff. The book is available anywhere books are sold. Um, my website is tinabryson.com and I've got all kinds of free content on there. Um, videos about pandemic parenting and um, a video about the bottom line for baby and all of that on there. And then I'm also posting a lot of kind of my the stuff that I'm doing um, on Instagram. I'm finding um, that I'm on there way more than Facebook these days. So my uh, Instagram handle is Tina Payne Bryson. Hard to forget. Tina, thank you again for another awesome discussion. We need more time and we will do it again. Thank you, Dan. All right, everyone. That concludes our show. Definitely check out Tina's other two podcasts on her previous books. They are just as informative as this one today. I want to remind you, in Tina's words, when we are aware, we have choice. And also to practice paying attention on purpose as always, I remind you for all of us to be the person we want our children to become, to focus on our own health, our own awareness, and our own engagement in our own life so we can be there and show up for our kids in intentional ways. Check us out, www.parentfootprint.com. Tell others about the show, subscribe away. And as always, I leave you with the guiding question, what footprint do you want to leave?